Thank you. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. And if you're a guest, we're honored and delighted that you're with us uh, today. I'm especially encouraged that you have braved the elements uh, to come and join us uh, publicly in worship. We're in the Gospel of uh, Mark. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 18. And we're going to read the first paragraph in chapter 3. Let's uh, pray together and then I'll invite you to stand. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the presence of your Spirit with us that when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the heaven that he sent the promised gift of the Spirit to us. Thank you that he's come to dwell within us. We thank you that he moved holy men over uh, the course of centuries uh, to give us your word and the gospel of Mark in particular. And so we pray for his opening of our understandings that we might receive uh, what uh, Mark intends, what you intend for us to see and hear about Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It's our custom to stand in recognition that this is God's word. Beginning in verse 18, the second chapter. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And when he came to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to harm, to save life, or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. 
and he stretched it out, and the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. You may take your seats. Well, many people think that Jesus came to establish just another religion. Just one other religious option for people. Granted, a world-class uh, religion. And if, if you're one of those people, if you're here and you're not uh, sure what Christianity is about or you tend to think of it as a religion, you might be surprised to know that Jesus was viewed as impious, irreligious, as a disrespecter of God. Now the five stories uh, in Mark, we read two of them last week, and these uh, three, all in composite, show us that Jesus was viewed as a blasphemer because he claimed that he could forgive sins. He was uh, viewed as easy on sin. He was a friend of sinners, and he did not demand a moral reformation uh, from them. He didn't demand they clean up their lives uh, before he has dinner with them. He was viewed as, well, not just insensitive uh, to the ancient traditions, but actually uh, someone you shouldn't take seriously because he despised them. And last of all, he was a Sabbath breaker. He was, well, unconcerned about the violations of God's law. Now, if you've read the Gospels before, and maybe especially if you haven't, you need to understand that Jesus troubles and offends the most religious people of the day. They are called the Pharisees. They were leading a reform movement. Their name actually means the pure ones. And um, they were, well, they represented 1% of the population. But they had an influence that far outweighed their numbers. And you would have liked them. These are the kind of people you would want for neighbors. They're the kind of people you'd want your daughters to marry. Because they were passionate about morality. Um, They were concerned about uh, uh, guarding family values. They were deeply troubled by the erosion that had taken place in those values. They urged people to care for the poor and the aged. They were defenders of the ancient traditions. Uh, They had a deep knowledge of the Bible. In other words, they were respectable, uh, responsible. They were people whose lives uh, were well-managed and together And they also happened largely to be well-to-do, because to do all the observation of the law in the way that they prescribed required that you be fairly independently uh, wealthy. Jesus has more in common with them than anyone else in the Gospels. And yet, he has a protracted and escalating conflict with them. He is sharply uh, critical of them. He challenges the religious impulses uh, that are within them and actually within us as well. Now, I want to offer a very simple definition, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Religion says do, and Jesus says done. 
The heart of religion is doing, and the heart of following Jesus to embrace, is to embrace what he's done. So, see, religion says if you do the right things, you'll not only be a better person, but you'll be acceptable to God. And you can count on him giving you the life that you really long for. It, now, it doesn't really matter whether your version of religion is conservative or whether it's liberal. It doesn't matter if the code that you live by or the ceremonies you participate uh, in are the Ten Commandments or loving your neighbor as yourself or just treating people with respect. It just simply doesn't uh, matter or whether it's some liberal version of uh, morality. All religion says in essence that if you do the right thing, you'll be, well, a good person, the kind of person that God accepts. Christianity says that you are more disconnected and f from God and flawed than you can imagine, and yet you are more accepted and loved than you would ever hope because of Christ living and dying and rising from the dead for you. Now, I put this very, very uh, simply, and in some ways we need to hear it simply because it's very hard to take in the gospel and believe it at a deep uh, level and to give up the project of self-salvation, of thinking by doing certain things, we achieve favor or standing uh, with God. You see, the religious impulse to do something is at the root of all religions. And it distorts even Christianity. I know firsthand it can do that. And here are four subtle symptoms. I say they're subtle. They're not necessarily blatant. But you can participate in Christianity's religion as a way to feel good about yourself and to put others down. After all, I'm right and they're wrong. After all, I'm a moral person doing the right things and after all, they are not. Or you can s discover that religion is actually a good way to hide from God. You can hide from God in the mosque, the Buddhist temple, or in the church because you can become so involved in its life that you avoid seeing your own sins, even though you have 20-20 vision about others. And uh, religion has at its heart, uh, it's just the opposite of biblical religion, because at its heart, it seeks by what uh, you do to manipulate God to get the life that you want. And religion can result in a power uh, trip because, well, religion gives you access to what people ought to do. And it's easy to use that knowledge in such a way that you use guilt or shame to actually manipulate uh, people. And you'll deceive yourself about it because, of course, you'll tell yourself you're just calling people to do what God wants them uh, to do. All of these things are very, very uh, subtle, and they easily creep into us because the religious impulse in our hearts is part of what it means to be fallen. Part of what it means to be fallen is instead of submitting to God, we want to maintain control in our lives.
Now, Jesus exposes actually all of these and what uh, takes place in these uh, next three events. And let me, let me just outline what they are. Uh, Jesus calls us to feasting and joy and not fasting and mourning. That's verses 18 to 22. And then in verses 23 to the end of that chapter, Jesus calls us to recover the gift of sacred time. And in the last uh, story I read to you, uh, Jesus calls us to decide either for or against him. Now, Mark is not following chronology here. All five of these stories are connected because they present to us Jesus as, uh, as someone who's controversial. And he's arranged them intentionally in a certain way to lead us to that last point, to summon us as hearers of the gospel to respond to it. So first of all, let's look at this. Jesus calls us to feasting and joy, not fasting and mourning. Now, Jesus' disciples are asked a question by John's disciples and the Pharisees. Why is it that we fast and you and your followers don't? And really to appreciate why this is such an important question. It was huge to them as they posed this question. You need a little background. So Jews, by the first century, uh, had denoted fasting as one of the three pillars that demarked what it meant to be a faithful Jew. And pious people, people who were serious about God, fasted regularly. Now the Old Testament, in fact, only commanded one day of the year as a fast day, uh, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement in which there was to be total abstinence uh, from food and water. But fasting was culturally also an expression of mourning, a way of showing sorrow for sin. And over time, it became one of the principal ways of expressing uh, sorrow for the sins of Israel. Not just their present sins, but all their past sins. And the Pharisees, the the separated ones, the, the purest, they fasted without food or drink from sunrise to sunset, every Monday and Thursday. This, for them, was their way of observing this hallmark. And so the question really is, we could could put it this way, Jesus, why are your disciples so impious as not to fast? Don't you know that you should show God some respect? And Jesus answers with an analogy that they should have picked up on, but they may not have. Uh, he, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, wedding feasts in Jesus' day were week-long affairs. People did not work during that week. They celebrated. And it was socially inappropriate to fast at the wedding feast. To do so was to communicate that you disapproved of this marriage. And groomsmen were not looking for a day during the feast to start a fast. Now they were looking for food to be served to them. They were looking forward to a week of great meals. And in effect, what Jesus is saying to them is, you don't understand what time it is. Don't you recognize what time it is? And what Jesus is saying here 
is he's dropping a hint to them and these folks who had such a deep knowledge of the Old Testament should have immediately recognized this because in the Old Testament, God frequently describes himself as the bridegroom and the people of Israel as his bride. Let me just read one passage from Isaiah where Isaiah uses this image. Um, Isaiah's writing, uh, uh, looking back on the Israel's fall and their uh, having been deported out of the land. And he's speaking to them of a new day, a day of hope. And he writes, and this is uh, chapter 54, if you want to look at it later. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And what Jesus is saying here is God has come among you. God is doing something new. And what he's saying indirectly is I am God, your Redeemer. And now is a time of fulfillment and joy. God's kingdom is breaking into the world. This is a new uh, beginning uh, for the people of God and for you. God has come to forgive, to heal, uh, to restore, and to grant a new beginning. To take for himself a new people as a bridegroom takes a bride. And so it's a time to rejoice. It's a time to celebrate. It's not time to fast and uh, mourn, to grieve over sin. No, the sin has been dealt with. There's now forgiveness and redemption. That's what he's saying to them. Now, um, there was a man who uh, lived in Los Angeles uh, a few decades ago, and he uh, wanted to enter the adventure travel business. And he came upon the idea that what adventure travel uh, folks would like to do, you know, they're, they're people who don't want a tour of, uh, you know, a nice uh, city. They want to do something that's kind of out of the way and different. And he had on the idea of, let's create a tour of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Well, as he was doing some research, he found out there weren't very many of them left. But, but, at, that, but at that time, uh, the Hanging Gardens of uh, Babylon were being restored. And there was extensive archaeological dig. And so uh, he made arrangements for a guide and uh, worked out a way for these adventure travelers to come and actually participate in in the dig, and he uh, secured hotels and meals, and then he launched an ad campaign. Well, he had secured a million dollars from a venture capitalist to do all of this. He ran his ad campaigns during golf and tennis tournaments because those were the kind of people uh, he thought might be able to afford this kind of travel. And uh, two weeks before his inaugural trip, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and the State Department bans all travel to Iraq. 
And of course, that's where the ancient hanging gardens of Babylon uh, were. And so he agonizes over this for three weeks about how to go to the venture capitalist and tell him, well, he can't repay this money. And he goes to the bank first and he asks the bank, you know, uh, what would he get if he took up a second mortgage on his home? And he realized, well, that wouldn't even begin to cover a fifth of the debt. And so he hit upon the idea that he would, well, he'd give the man $5,000 a month every month. He didn't know where $5,000 would come from. And the more he contemplated it after drawing it up as contract, he realized it wouldn't even cover, well, the interest on that much money. And so very dejectedly and with great uh, a sense of humility and apology, he goes into the man's office and explains uh, what's happened and he offers this uh, contract. He is sweating the entire time even though the air conditioner is blowing at a very cool 68 degrees in the office. And the venture capitalist raises up his hand and stops him and he says, wait, what nonsense are you talking about repayment? That's silly, I'm a speculator, I win some, I lose some, your plan uh, had some risk. It was a great idea. It's not your fault it fell out. And he completely forgave the man's past commitment. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying has happened. God in Christ has come to completely forgive the past. His people's past, your past. If you turn to him, all the things that you're ashamed of, all the things you failed at are forgiven. Where Jesus is, there should be joy. And then Jesus says something that casts kind of a shadow on this picture. He says, the time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then the disciples will fast. Now, on a wedding feast, of course, the bridegroom is not taken away. He takes his bride, and they go, they go off and begin uh, their marriage life. And Jesus is hinting that the way that this redemption, this forgiveness, this new beginning will take place is his own death. But until then, and now in the lives of his followers, the dominant theme and note should be joy. Why should there be joy? Well, because Jesus is present in our lives. The Christian life is not one of dour, sad, or mournfulness. That should not in the whole characterize our lives. And this has implications for worship as well. Worship is when Jesus is especially present uh, with us. When we worship, we experience redemption and forgiveness. Our shame and guilt are taken away from us. And we're renewed in this every time we come to worship. Jesus has come to be with us. That's why being in corporate worship makes a difference. And Christians have always felt it's inappropriate to fast on Sunday. Sunday is a feast day. It is a day of joy, not of sadness and mourning. Now, there may occasionally be a time uh, when that should happen, but that should not be the primary note. It should not be the staple of worship. Our worship service should be filled with joy because Jesus, our Redeemer, is here. Our uh, bridegroom is here. And it's a joy that transcends, well, the shallow happiness that comes when everything in our lives is ordered just the way we would like it. 
You see, this is an otherworldly joy that cannot be manufactured. And uh, religion, you see, is something uh, other than that. Religion, in the end, leaves people sad or proud. Proud, if you think you're doing everything your religion requires of you, and sad if, in fact, you see the truth about yourself that you're not. That's not Christianity. Now, Christianity is unlike all the other world's religions in that it has no sacred place. Most of the major world's religions do. Judaism has Jerusalem. Islam has uh, Mecca. Uh, uh, Hinduism has the Ganges River. Uh, Shintoism claims the whole of Japan as a sacred uh, place. But in Christianity, there are no sacred places. Church buildings are not sacred places. They're not temples. They're instead gathering places, and the people of God are the temple, not the building. What's special about here is the people of God, not the chairs. This, this uh, they call it a desk in our tradition, is not sacred. Um, that's, that's really a misnomer because it draws our attention away from something else. But Christianity, like Judaism, observes sacred time. You see, Jesus and the disciples are, Jesus is summoning here in these words, a recovery of sacred time. And Jesus and the disciples are traveling on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath, Jewish Saturday, was a day when God commanded his people uh, to rest from work. And Jesus and his disciples are hungry, and they're traveling through a grain field, and the Old Testament required that farmers not gather up all the grain. They were to leave the corners ungathered for the poor. The poor were to come there and take what they needed. That wasn't stealing. That was God's provision uh, for them. And they pick some grain and they uh, eat it. And some of the Pharisees uh, who saw this ask, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, once again, we need to understand some of the background because this, this is a more significant conversation uh, for them than it might appear uh, to us. Uh, God directed Moses to command us to work six days and then to cease from work one day. And uh, this was in keeping with observing the very pattern of God's creating uh, the world, and then resting. This was one of the most distinctive features about uh, biblical Jewish life. It was one of the things that marked them as different. But through the centuries, it came to take on some additional meaning. The the rabbis uh, knew that Israel had gone into exile because they had broken the Sabbath. Was one, that's not the only reason, but it was one of the reasons. And so they taught that if all Israel would strictly keep the Sabbath for a single Sabbath day, that the Messiah would come and he would restore the nation to all its glory. And so they were very intent on seeing the nation uh, keep the Sabbath. Perfectly. 
In other words, God's promises would uh, be realized through law-keeping. And they knew that, well, uh, thinking through what was work and wasn't work was, well, people needed direction. And so they erected a fence around the law. They did this in all the law, but they did it extensively for the fourth commandment. And uh, there's a, a huge uh, uh, collection of writings that describe the 39 uh, activities that they define as work. And they do this with the detail of, well, the federal uh, law code. Yeah, this enormous detail about what constitutes work and not. And doing any of these activities, they labeled as work. And the disciples have violated two of those. They have traveled further than uh, the tradition says they can, and they've been harvesting grain. And so these questions are weighted up uh, for the Pharisees as they pose them uh, to Jesus. They believe it's a very big deal, a very big deal to God. And Jesus answers them in a way that's well, he's seeking sincerely to persuade them that he hasn't broken God's law. Um, and he speaks in a way that would make a lot of sense uh, to rabbis in that day. He gives them an Old Testament example from the life of David. And he appeals to a higher principle in the law. He's saying, in effect, God's heart and purpose in the law has always been for human flourishing. God did not give the law uh, to crush human beings. Rather, the law was an expression of his care for people so that they would see what things in life would lead to their flourishing and good. And he makes this point uh, uh, with the story about the bread that David's men took. They took bread that was forbidden for any but the priest, the bread of the presence, to eat, and they ate it because they were hungry. That's what Jesus is getting at. Meeting human need is more important than the ceremonial law, even though the ceremonial law was binding. It's not for us, but it was that. And then he gives two sayings. The first is this, the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. What Jesus is doing is recovering God's original intent for the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees created a fence. You know, fences keep you in, they keep you out. They tried to delineate exactly what constituted keeping uh, the law. And Jesus is saying that uh, God's uh, purpose in creating human beings was not to observe the Sabbath. Clocks, you see, are made for keeping time. Human beings were not made to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not God's act of oppressing us. It's rather God's act of freeing us from what work can become. Now, work is a good thing. It was given uh, to us uh, in our innocence before man rebelled against God. It's a wonderful thing. But in our fallenness, well, uh, it can actually take over our lives. And our, uh, it can cause us actually to neglect other uh, vital priorities. And in this way, work can actually tyrannize us. Um, uh, you see, we can actually come to believe at a very deep level that it's our work ultimately th that provides for us. That's how our needs are met. 
And while it's true that the ordinary way that God provides for us is uh, through our work, the deeper truth is that your ability to work and your ability to make a living working all ultimately come from God because God himself is the one who cares for you. He's the one who provides for you. And Jesus is, what he's doing is, and what the Sabbath actually did, is it called us to actually express in a very concrete way that we believe God's our provider. That by working seven days a week, which is what you'd feel compelled to do if you actually believe the only way you could survive is by work, is we refrain. We refrain from it as a practical expression of our trust and dependence in God. So Jesus is affirming sacred time. He's not abolishing it. He's saying man should rest in one day out of seven. In fact, he did this in his entire life. And I know most of you probably know this, but my gift is to state the obvious, and this is the obvious, that if you work day after day, 14 days in a row, 21 days in a row, 28 days in a row, it will wreck your health, you'll lose your sanity, and as well as your friends. Uh, And... Of course, they wondered, who is Jesus to say such a thing? After all, God gave us the Sabbath. Who is this upstart rabbi who shows himself to be irreligious? And Jesus says this, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That expression, Son of Man, as we saw last time, is Jesus claiming to have divine authority to make judgments. And he's declaring uh, that in his judgment... The acts of his disciples, in fact, are not law-breaking. He's, you see, he's claiming in an indirect way to be God. He's not abolishing the Sabbath, but he's not a legalist or a liberal about the law. And this is very important. You see, Jesus, as Tertullian noted, is crucified between two thieves. And so the gospel is ever being crucified between legalism and lawless. You see, on the one hand, legalists have truth without grace, for they imply, and sometimes even say, that we must obey the truth in order to be saved. On the other hand, liberals have grace without truth, for they say or imply we're accepted by God regardless of what uh, we have decided is true for us. But those who have truth without grace don't really have truth, and those who have grace without uh, truth don't really have grace. Because the beauty and glory of Jesus is that in him is one who's full of both truth and grace. If you de-emphasize either one of these, truth or grace, if you lose one of these truths, you will fall somewhere toward legalism or somewhat into license. And you will eliminate the joy and release of the gospel. In fact, the lack of joy is one of the chief tells that you've fallen off to one side or the other. Because without a knowledge of the depth and horribleness of our sin, the payment of the gospel will seem trivial to you. It won't electrify you. It won't move you deeply. And without a knowledge of Christ's complete and satisfying death and life, the knowledge of sin would crush you, 
or it would move you to deny that it's real in your own life, and you'd repress it. Either way, uh, the knowledge of sin or the knowledge of grace, uh, when those are not both present, a life remains unchanged. You'll either be crushed by the moral law or you'll run from it if you don't understand grace. Now, Luther put it this way, uh, Luther the German uh, reformer, simul justus et peccator. See, I'm, I'm not really trying to show off. But it means simultaneously accepted and yet a sinner. We are declared righteous in God's eyes and yet also remain sinful. We are actually more sinful than, well, we can imagine. The depth of our sin and depravity runs very, very uh, deep. And the only reason you don't see it all if you're a Christian is, is, well, God knows you couldn't handle the look. He'd just crush you to see the extent of it. Um, But we're also more accepted uh, than we ever uh, would imagine and hope for. Uh, When the gospel dawns within us, it releases power, transforming uh, power. And instead of seeing the law as an abstract moral code, Christians see it as a way to know, serve, and resemble their master. Instead of obeying the law to put God into debt to them, they obey it because they're indebted to him. Instead of being driven by an anxious sense of being unacceptable, they're empowered by grateful joy. The difference between these two ways of morality couldn't be greater. Their spirits, their goals, their motivations, and their results are entirely different. So I want to say there's another implication here that, well, might escape you. Because sacred time, you see, is a freedom. It's a freedom from the tyranny of work. It's a freedom to come in to a deep flourishing. It's a freedom that comes with recognizing that everybody has limits, including you. You see, what Jesus is doing here when he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, is he is claiming your time if you are a Christ follower. One of the most simple and profound things that Paul writes is that you are bought with a price and you are not your own. And as a follower of Christ, that has a lot of implications. And one of them is is how you spend your time every week. You see, the early church understood this. They uh, called Uh, the day the Lord Jesus resurrected the Lord's Day. It was a day of rest and renewal and worship. And if you've never heard this before, well, I know it it might be jarring, might be hard for you uh, to accept, but I would implore you to consider this and perhaps understand uh, what Jesus is saying uh, here. This is the pattern of Jesus' life. And he calls us to it, both as creatures. You do know you spend about a third of your life asleep, right? It's just a daily reminder that you are not impotent, (laughs) impotent, I mean uh, omnipotent. Uh, You are a dependent creature, and you will remain that 
but it's also a mark of our redemption. And it should be celebrated and honored among us. You see, the Christian doesn't ask, what can or can't I do on this day? The Christian asks, how do I honor God's intent for the day and make it a day of rest and worship and renewal? Now, Mark has organized these uh, uh, scenes so that we see the next one uh, right up against the last one. This is another day. It's a Sabbath day. Jesus is with his disciples. We're back in Capernaum. And a man with paralysis in his forearm is present. His hand's atrophied. It's weak. It's probably thin. Uh, His bones are protruding. And Jesus, the impious, who's already offended uh, the Pharisees multiple times, uh, who they see themselves as the guardian of Old Testament religion, they are now there. But this time they're there watching. They're starting to work on uh, their plan to catch him in something. They want to build a case against him. Uh, After all, uh, he's healed on the Sabbath day before, and they maintained that healing uh, was a work. It was a form of work. It could only be performed if a life was threatened. Obviously, this man with a paralyzed hand is not in a life-threatening situation. And so... In accordance with uh, their understanding of the law, they're watching him to see what he will do. And Jesus confronts them. He asks them this uh, question. In fact, he summons the man who has a crippled hand to come to him. And four times, if you go back, you'll look four times, either directly or indirectly, they've questioned Jesus either in their hearts or uh, with their words. But now Jesus questions them. It's a softball uh, question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? You see, what he's saying is, is it's God's intention for the Sabbath to do good? Is it lawful to do good? Or is it lawful to do what's evil? And then he asks about this man in particular. Is it lawful to do what's good for this man and heal him? To restore the use of his hand. And you might not know, but they did, that this man with this withered hand could not go into the temple and worship. He was forbidden from entering the temple. They they knew that. And they are silent. They will not answer this question. And then there's three very weighty words, we're told. Jesus is angry, and he's deeply distressed, and it's by the hardness of their hearts. You see, they are mirroring Pharaoh as the Israelites were under his oppression. In the hardness of his heart, Pharaoh opposed God's redeeming purposes, and they themselves are uh, opposing those purposes, and so they're missing They're missing the blessing that Jesus has come to give them. You see, their religion is life-sapping. Theirs is the religion of being right. It's an obedience to an external uh, code. It's a religion that lacks compassion for the destruction that's come upon people's lives because of our fall into human uh, sin. 
And the climax of what happens here is the moment that uh, Jesus has summoned this man. Just try to imagine you're this man and how you might feel. I know how I'd feel. I'd feel like, why did I come to synagogue today? I didn't want somebody to point out my hand and make me the center of attention. I just came uh, here to listen and to worship. And the question is, will he act or will he hide? And he takes the risk of faith. He exposes uh, himself and he's healed. And what happens next is so ironic. Because you see what the defenders of the law do is not violate their own understanding of the traditions they've created around the law, which is what they're sure Jesus has just done, but they break the actual 10th command, one of the 10 commandments. They begin to plot murder in their hearts. You see, for them, the law has become a code that is disconnected to God. Uh, The law has, in fact, displaced God for them. And so they're not in a vital relationship with God, which is part of why they don't understand the intent of the law. And Jesus told these two parables. And now you can really appreciate what he's saying when he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because it'll tear. No one puts new wine in old wineskins because they'll burst. What Jesus is saying is that my being present changes everything. Not only are the old traditions and the old ways that you have looked at the law, they need to be completely reordered, but in fact, the whole intent of the law needs to be understood in light of me. The old ways won't be serviceable anymore because I've come. And Mark has foreshadowed what's coming in the gospel. Jesus intimated it when he said the bridegroom would be taken away. And now he tells us right here in chapter 3 that the plot is forming for the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus. There's a shadow over Jesus as he dies. Mark tells us, as Jesus hung on the cross in the sixth hour, their darkness came over the land, the whole land, until the ninth hour. A supernatural darkness that was symbolic of the judgment of God and his wrath falling upon Jesus, who was now cursed. And friends, that's what this table speaks to us about about the bridegroom being taken away and dying in order to secure a bride for himself, in order to claim us as his own, to forgive our past, to lift our shame. Jesus himself uh, came under the dark shadow of the judgment of God in our place. And we come to this table with profound recognition of what he's done for us. That's why this table is for those that have acknowledged their sinners and publicly confessed it. And that's why this table is a table of joy because Jesus has taken for us what we could not ourselves bear. And as we come to this table, perhaps freshly conscious of our sin, perhaps 
acutely aware that we too, well, there's something in us that's like the Pharisees. We're going to come not just to mourn that, but to rejoice that Jesus has come to set us free.